Welcome to Renegade Files, you filthy animal. Once again, we meet here on the weird side of the internet to explore the fractal edges of covert culture. I'm your host, Dr. Lex Gordon, coming to you from the Jungleville Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 52, Hunter S. Thompson, The Last Outlaw Journalist. Hunter S. Thompson was an American writer who created the gonzo genre of journalism, a highly personal style of reporting that injects the author's perspectives and experiences into the stories being covered. Thompson's definitive works within the genre made him a counterculture icon. He explored themes of political and popular culture with a laser-like wit, purple prose, and an unapologetic, audacious flair that challenged authority figures and sacred institutions, while never bowing to either side of the political spectrum. He criticized American politics and politicians, media, and social constructs with rebellious sarcasm and a pure love of real freedoms. Because he shunned the distant objectivity of tidy journalism and immersed himself in the stories he wrote, he was able to deliver insights and observations that traditional journalists would have never even noticed. He was one of the first writers to offer alternative perspectives to mainstream media narratives and as such is a hero of many writers who value truth over agenda. So let's do this. Join me on a road trip into the twisted mindscape of a counterculture rebel who infuriated many, inspired more, and left us with not only his own stunning words and observations, but a new way of both writing about and looking at this wonderful, terrible, impossible world we live in. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Are you ready for that? Checking into a podcast created by a madman and loved by degenerates with intent to commit capital fraud on a head full of conspiracies? I sure hope so. Chapter 1. Origins Hunter Stockton Thompson was born on 18 July 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky to middle-class parents. He was athletic, but he never participated in team sports, choosing instead to join the high school literary society, write for the yearbooks, and gravitate towards the alternative authors such as Jack Kerouac and J.P. Don Levy. As his high school years progressed, he began drinking and running pretty hard, and he was arrested a few times for essentially getting too rowdy. But then he got arrested for theft in 1956 when he was a high school senior. Apparently, he got a ride with some other guys, and the car they were driving had been used in some kind of robbery, and when they got pulled over for it, Hunter went to jail too. The judge offered him jail time or military service, and that's how Hunter Thompson wound up in the Air Force, and it's also why he never graduated high school. He got out of the Air Force and bounced around a few writing jobs or errand-type jobs at a magazine or two until he read an ad for a column writer at a Puerto Rico-based sports magazine. So with the intention of getting that job, 
which he did get, he moved to San Juan. But according to Hunter, that magazine was a rag, and I think it was basically a front for publishing borderline illegal gambling content and maybe some other shady news or whatever. In any case, it wasn't exactly as they had portrayed it in the ad, and eventually the publication folded, and this left Hunter in Puerto Rico with no job. In his time between the defunct sports magazine job and his eventual move to San Francisco in 1965, Hunter stayed in Puerto Rico for a while, traveled through South America, and along the way he wrote the novels Prince Jellyfish, which was never published, and The Rum Diary, which was finally published in 1998. So Hunter found himself in San Francisco in 1965, and he fell right into that scene of new music, recreational drugs, and excessive drinking. He started writing for a local counterculture pulp publication called Spider Magazine. But Spider was really just a stapled paper booklet, typeset with a typewriter and decorated with hand-drawn artwork on the pages and photos taped into it before being photocopied. This isn't really a judgment because I'm sure they had cool stuff in there. Volume 1 had an interview with Kenneth Anger, for good or ill, but all I'm saying is that Hunter probably didn't make much money from whatever articles he wrote for Spider Magazine. He wrote an article about the Hells Angels motorcycle gang for The Nation magazine in 1965, and that was well received. The article resulted in a book offer to expand on the story, and Hunter spent the next year not just interviewing the Hells Angels members, but actually riding with them and diving into that lifestyle. This was the beginning of Hunter as the gonzo journalist, allowing himself to become part of the story. At this time, Hunter had also written a story about the Kentucky Derby for Scanlon magazine, and in response to this article, a friend had written him saying he loved it and that it was, quote, pure gonzo. Hunter liked that word, and he began to refer to his immersive style as gonzo journalism. So he goes off to write the Hells Angels book. At first, everything was cool, and the bikers liked Hunter well enough. But eventually, they grew suspicious of what he was up to, and they felt like he was planning to make money off of their name, which he was. So the Hells Angels demanded Thompson share the money he was going to make from the book with them, and that was the beginning of the end. At a party, Hunter stood up for one of the biker gang girlfriends when she got into it with her guy who was hitting her, and for that, Thompson was beaten badly by a group of the bikers. But he did stay friends with some of the Hells Angels even after that. The book, Hells Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs, was published in 1967, and it made a name for Thompson as a writer, and he started selling articles to major publications like Esquire Magazine and Harper's. Okay, so that's the basic story of who Hunter S. Thompson was and how he got started on the road to shaking up American journalism and writing in general. This episode isn't going to be a timeline of his entire life, but I did want to set that foundation. When Random House published the Hells Angels book, they set up a tour for Hunter to go around and do book signings. And because pop culture was becoming fascinated with the subject of shady biker gangs at the time, 
They also arranged for Hunter to do a string of radio and TV interviews to promote the book. And here we start to see Hunter's rebellious or anti-authoritarian inclinations, which is really just a fancy way to say that he didn't give a crap about the suits at Random House or the talking heads on the TV shows, and he also had a reflex to do the opposite of whatever anyone told him to do. So for the book promotion tour appearances, he kept showing up drunk or intoxicated on a combination of drugs, and he often made a mess of it all. Not always, but quite a bit. Random House blamed his behavior for the generally poor sales of the book, and Hunter blamed them for being a bunch of bureaucrats with no vision. Knowing Hunter the way we do now, when you go back and watch some of those old talk shows, you can see what he's doing. He's subverting expectations, he's ridiculing hypocrisy, he's taking little jabs at the system, but in 1967, most audiences didn't really get it, and it all made him look like a weirdo, which he was, but weird in a really clever way. Here's a quote from a newspaper that had sent Hunter on assignment to write an article. This appeared in the space where his article was supposed to have been. Quote, Editor's note. Due to circumstances beyond our control, the following section was lashed together at the last moment from a six-pound bundle of documents, notebooks, memos, recordings, and secretly taped phone conversations with Dr. Thompson during a month of erratic behavior in Washington, New York, Colorado, and Miami. His long-range plan, he says, is to refine these nerve-wracking methods somehow and eventually create an entire new form of journalism. In the meantime, we have suspended his monthly retainer and canceled his credit card. During one four-day period in Washington, he destroyed two cars, cracked a wall in the Hilton, purchased two French horns at $1,100 each, and walked through a plate glass door in a Turkish restaurant." End quote. Although it may have been a rocky relationship, Random House introduced Hunter to a wider audience, and thus began his journey down the roads of immersive subject explorations and unorthodox reporting on popular culture, all through the eyes of a counterculture outcast. One of the best interviews with Hunter, perhaps in his prime, is the Harrison-Salisbury interview from 1975. I'll put a link to that video interview in the show notes so you can check it out. Chapter 2. Books and Movies One of the first books Hunter wrote was The Rum Diary. And some people remember the title as The Rum Diaries, which I always did. And that's a true Mandela effect, which is another show altogether. So for now, we'll refer to it as it seems to be these days, The Rum Diary. This book is an early glimpse into Hunter's style, where we have a work of fiction heavily based on the author's own real experiences. The main character is a sports writer in Puerto Rico, just like Hunter was when he started writing the book in 1960. The book languished for decades, and Hunter returned to it a few times, but he was never satisfied with it as a whole. He only sold it to be published in 1998 when he needed the money. 
they eventually made a movie based on the book and it starred Johnny Depp. And this is the film set where Depp met Amber Heard. And then you have that whole story. The movie suffers from having no real plot line, no character arcs, and a lack of a satisfying ending. And because of this, it wasn't much of a box office or critical success. People who liked the book hated the movie, and people who had never read the book but were expecting Fear and Loathing in Puerto Rico were disappointed. I actually liked the movie, but I can deal with a non-linear, character-driven film now and then. Plus, I'm a fan of Depp and Hunter. Also, Giovanni Rabisi is amazing in his small and really strange part. We also have the anomaly of a fictional biopic that starred Bill Murray as Hunter. That movie was Where the Buffalo Roam. It was based on the obituary Hunter had written for his deceased, or at least vanished, attorney, and Hunter sold the film rights for it because he thought the movie would never be made. He had previously sold the rights for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas multiple times, and it had yet to be made. So he thought there was no way anyone would ever actually make the Buffalo Rome movie based on an obituary he had written. But then, several circumstances aligned, and as Hunter puts it, quote, Then all of a sudden there was some moment of terrible horror when I realized they were going to make the movie. Production was a mess. Murray became so engrossed in the method of portraying Hunter that he essentially became the character, even returning to the set of Saturday Night Live with shooting glasses and a cigarette holder and mumbling like Thompson for a year or so after the film. He actually warned Johnny Depp while Depp was preparing to play Hunter in Fear and Loathing that if Depp did play Hunter, there would always be a part of Hunter stuck inside him. I think we can all agree that that's the case to this day. It's very interesting. When I was watching the interview that I mentioned earlier, there was a few times when I thought, wow, Hunter Thompson really sounds exactly like Johnny Depp. If you close your eyes, you would think it was Johnny Depp. But then you have the realization that, wait a minute, it's actually Johnny Depp that sounds like Hunter. So now we have Hunter Thompson sounding like Johnny Depp because Johnny Depp always sounds like Hunter Thompson. And it becomes twisted and, you know, that's just kind of how Hunter Thompson's world was. Part of that could also be the fact that both of them are from Kentucky, but neither of them have what anyone would call a Kentucky accent, so it isn't exactly that. It's like Bill Murray said, a part of Hunter is still inside of Depp and always will be. I bet Dr. Depp would agree. As for Where the Buffalo Roam, which came out in 1980, Hunter said it was, quote, a bad, dumb, low-level, low-rent script and film historian Leonard Maltin said the movie would, quote, baffle those who aren't familiar with Hunter S. Thompson's work and insult those who are. I've seen it, and it's pretty bad. Hunter and Bill Murray did become friends because of the movie, and although Hunter always hated where the buffalo roam, he always liked Bill Murray. So that movie was being made eight years after Hunter published Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which was a successful book, and it had introduced Hunter to his widest audience up to that point. The book started out as a series of articles in Rolling Stone magazine. The way it all came about is as surreal as the book itself. The book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream, 
which Hunter always referred to as simply Vegas, was based on two trips that Hunter took with attorney Oscar Zeta Acosta in March and April of 1971. On the first trip, the two went to research an article for Rolling Stone about the Mexican-American TV reporter Ruben Salazar, who had been shot and killed by L.A. County deputies during a march against the Vietnam War in 1970. The second trip happened when Hunter was offered a job from Sports Illustrated to write photo captions for the annual Mint 400 Desert Motorcycle Race. The job was for 250 words of photo captions, but after the race, Hunter submitted to Sports Illustrated a 2,500-word novel treatment, which they, according to Hunter, aggressively rejected. It was this treatment, plus the previous accounts of the trip to cover the protest shooting of the journalist, that became fear and loathing in Las Vegas. The book was a counterculture hit, but a hit nonetheless. It was a full-blown gonzo journalism watershed moment, and it blurred all lines between subject, author, fiction, and reality. Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone both tried to make a movie based on the book, but neither of them ever got it done. And in the end, it was Monty Python's Terry Gilliam who finally pulled it off, with Johnny Depp playing the lead role of Raoul Duke, the fictionalized persona of Hunter Thompson, and Benicio Del Toro cast as Duke's attorney, Dr. Gonzo, who is a fictionalization of the real attorney, Oscar Zeta Acosta. The movie cost more to make than it took in at the box office, and the reviews were mixed, so it was somewhat of a flop in traditional terms but it has since become a cult classic. Actually, it has become an entire cultural phenomenon all its own, and it made Raoul Duke a counterculture hero outside of the actual counterculture who had loved Hunter Thompson for decades. I guess we could say it brought Gonzo to the normies. Hunter said that Raoul Duke was a vehicle for quotations that no one else would say, but it was really always him talking. Raoul Duke is a partially fictionalized author-surrogate character and sometimes pseudonym of Hunter S. Thompson and the anti-hero narrator of the work. Depp is amazing in the film, as is Del Toro, and it's one of those movies that you either get it and you like it or you don't, and there's not much middle ground there. The film has grown into far large of a subject to fully analyze within the framework of this podcast, but I will say that it's mostly known for being about excess and drugs and psychedelic hallucination, confronting the machine of expectation, and it is all of those things. But more than that, it's about jumping into a car and driving across America to not just find the soul of the country, but to have an adventure. It's like Easy Rider or Tulane Blacktop in the way that it treats the terrain as a character and the trip as the story. It's also about taking a chance, diving into something when you're not sure how you're going to do it, but doing it anyway. But in 1978, in a famous interview that was part of what's called the Omnibus Documentary, Hunter Thompson said he felt like he had taken gonzo journalism and Raoul Duke as far as he could take it. 
that he was starting to repeat himself and that the Raoul Duke device was making it harder to work on a story and less fun. He felt like he always had to be a part of the story, which was initially the novel concept that had propelled him forward, but now it was becoming a nuisance. He said that when he went to cover a press conference with Jimmy Carter, he had to sign more autographs than Carter. He said the Secret Service guys didn't know who he was. They they thought he must have been an astronaut or something. So Thompson could no longer appear at a story without becoming a part of the story. He said that he was in the way as a person because the myth had taken over. Chapter 3. Stories and Quotes This section jumps around a lot. I guess kind of like a Hunter S. Thompson writing assignment, but this stuff doesn't go in any order anyway. The point is to dive into the content, so here we go. One anecdote Hunter shared was what he calls one of the greatest ironies of his life, which is the fact that he was actually in the Watergate Hotel the night that the men from Nixon's camp broke into the DNC offices there. Hunter was in the bar with Tom Quinn, a sports columnist from the Washington Daily News. What are the chances? At his first meeting with Random House Publishers in New York, they watched in amazement as he drank 20 double wild turkey whiskeys in a little over three hours, then walked out as if he were totally sober. Hunter started calling himself Dr. Hunter S. Thompson after he got a mail-order PhD in divinity, and journalists still refer to him as Dr. Hunter S. Thompson to this day. In 1980, Thompson divorced his wife, Sandra Conklin. That same year, we had the release of Where the Buffalo Roam, which was the terrible movie we talked about already, but it did cause Hunter and Bill Murray to become friends, and while I couldn't find a ton of information about this time, it is one of my favorite Hunter eras, and that is his time in Key West. Probably because I love Key West so much, but as far as I can find out, what happened was this. Hunter had just gotten divorced, and he needed to get out of his house and clear his mind. And at the same time, Jimmy Buffett, who was another one of Hunter's friends from the 70s, was going out on tour, which left Buffett's house in Key West vacant, or maybe a smaller guest house on the property. Like I said, it's hard to find information about that time. One note from an article about William McKean's book, Mile Marker Zero, which tells the story of those times in Key West, says that there was a period of about three years when no one really knows what Hunter was doing. We know he was living at Buffett's place in Key West. He wrote some articles for a local island newsletter. He was in Key West during the Marielle boat lift, the mass immigration of Cuban refugees to mainly Miami, but many of those boats landed in the Keys as well. Journalists flocked to cover the story while Hunter headed to the bar, and he had no plans to write about it until Esquire magazine offered him $15,000 as a cash advance to do a piece on it. But instead of covering the Marielle boat lift, Hunter blew through that money and began writing a novel called The Silk Road, offering an excerpt to his editors in lieu of the Marielle boat lift article. Hunter told the magazine that The Silk Road was, quote, a fast and strange, occasionally violent story that involves smuggling and scuba diving. Esquire roundly rejected the offer, 
and they took a loss on the advance. While he was in Key West, Hunter bought a small boat, a 17-foot Mako center console with a 115-horsepower Mercury outboard, and he used to cruise around the bay in the backwaters in it with his cigarette holder loaded and a console full of whatever beer he was drinking at the time. There are pictures of Hunter and Bill Murray out on the boat, and I'm sure those were some fun days. One friend said that when Hunter was living in Key West, it was the only time in his life that he was truly content. One afternoon, he returned to the marina, and as he was climbing out of the boat at the ramp, his foot slipped, and he fell onto the dock, and as he did, he managed to hit the throttle and floored the boat in gear. The boat flew away from the dock at top speed, circled the harbor, crashed into the bows of a dozen million-dollar yachts, and ripped the fronts off of half of them before firing back toward the ramp, causing Hunter to yell, the damn thing is coming after me now. He managed to jump out of the way just before the boat crashed up the boat ramp, skidded across the dock and the marina lawn, and crashed through the front door of the yacht club. Another story came to me firsthand from an acquaintance who used to own a bookstore in Key West from 1980 to 1990. This person told me that one afternoon around sunset, a police car was involved in a crash with another vehicle in Key West. I think there had been a chase of sorts and both cars were lodged a few yards off the road against a banyan tree. Bad storms were rolling across the island, so the scene was taped off with crime scene tape and the vehicles left there until the next day. Under cover of the raging lightning storms and pelting rain, Hunter snuck in late that night and stole the loudspeaker and microphone out of the police car. He then installed them into his Buick convertible that he had at the time. He used to drive around Key West yelling at the tourists and pedestrians over the loudspeaker mocking them in the crosswalks and running them off the sidewalks. Get out of the way, you bastards. Step lively. And no littering. Don't make me run you over, you poor slob. Hey, don't flip me off. Back to Jersey, you dime store hood. (laughs) Right now, let's go over some of my favorite Hunter quotes. I'm not going to cite each one. They're all either written in his books or said in interviews. So here we go. On some nights, I still believe that a car with the gas needle on empty can run about 50 more miles if you have the right music very loud on the radio. Buy the ticket, take the ride. I think George Washington had guns. I've never seen any contradiction with that. I'm not a liberal, by the way. I think that's what's wrong with liberals. I believe I have every right to have guns. I have a theory that the truth is never told in the nine to five hours. Regarding the assassination of JFK, Hunter S. Thompson wrote, It's war from now on. These swine have murdered the myth of American decency. The Edge. There's no honest way to explain it because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. Freedom is something that dies unless it's used. And this one is a bit longer. It's from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not in the long run. But no explanation, 
No mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time and the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit, but even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then, the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash, for reasons that nobody really understands at the time, and which never explain, in retrospect, what actually happened. There was madness in any direction, at any hour. If not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate, or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic, universal sense that whatever we were doing was right. That we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting. On our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Chapter 4. The End At 5.42pm on 20 February 2005, Thompson died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head at Owl Farm, his fortified compound in Woody Creek, Colorado. His son Juan, daughter-in-law Jennifer, and grandson were visiting for the weekend. His wife Anita, who was at the Aspen Club, was on the phone with him as he cocked the gun. According to the Aspen Daily News, Thompson asked her to come home to help him write his ESPN column then set the receiver on the counter. Anita said she mistook the cocking of the gun for the sound of his typewriter keys, and she hung up the phone just as he fired. Will, his grandson, and Jennifer were in the next room when they heard the gunshot. Juan Thompson found his father's body. According to the police report and Anita's cell phone records, he called the sheriff's office half an hour later then walked outside and fired three shotgun blasts to the air to mark the passing of his father. The police report stated that in Thompson's typewriter was a piece of paper with the date February 2205 and a single word, Counselor. Rolling Stone published what Douglas Brinkley described as a suicide note written by Thompson to his wife titled Football Season Is Over. It read, no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I'm always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You're getting greedy. Act your age. Relax. This won't hurt. 
Thompson's collaborator and longtime friend, artist Ralph Steadman, wrote, He told me 25 years ago that he would feel real trapped if he didn't know that he could commit suicide at any moment. I don't know if that's brave or stupid or what, but it was inevitable. I think that the truth of what rings through all of his writing is that he meant what he said. If that's entertainment to you, well, that's okay. If you think that it enlightened you, that's even better. If you wonder if he's gone to heaven or hell, rest assured he will check out them both. Find out which one Richard Milhouse Nixon went to and go there. He could never stand being bored. But there must be football too. And peacocks. Johnny Depp paid $3 million to have Hunter's funeral where Hunter's ashes were shot out of a rocket over his Colorado ranch and exploded in fireworks set to music with hundreds of friends in attendance. My summary. Hunter was an enigma, especially among journalists and writers of his time, and he would be even more so today because he wasn't on either side of the American two-party political system. He refused to follow the script of the establishment, and he also never painted the hippie movement as idealistic. He pointed out the shortcomings on every side. He wasn't on the left, he wasn't on the right, and nor was he in the center. He was on the outside. He was beyond the fringe. He was a fierce individualist. More than anything, he loved freedom. He was a crazy, lazy, rude, drunk bastard. But he was also a genius and a rebel and a writer who tapped into streams of experience to eliminate the distance between himself, the observer, and the words on the page. And because of the way he did the things he did, we get to live vicariously in a world of gonzo. And today, we see the establishment and the machinery of war and control and sleaze far more for what it is than we ever would have without the life and work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. So let's wrap this up with one last quote from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. There he goes, one of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind, never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live and too rare to die. Thank you sincerely for learning about Hunter S. Thompson with me. Subscribe or follow Renegade Files now. And check us out on Patreon through the show notes link for bonus episodes and to help me keep making this content. so happy to have you in the Renegade Files crew.
until we meet down the road again, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Gonzo child. <laughs>